The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're going to continue in our series this morning, Come and See. You guys bear with me if I'm sniffling or coughing. We've had something going around our house and last week my wife looked at me and said, would you grab a tissue or something? You're walking through here sounding like a bull and with all the humility that I generally have, I said, that's because I am. And I don't know if you know, my wife can roll her eyes like no woman ever could roll her eyes. That's what attracted me to her when that first date, the first time she rolled them, I thought, there's a woman who understands the richness of my sarcasm. And bliss ever since, as you can imagine. I'm excited to look in John 2. I'm I'm excited for a couple of reasons because we're continuing this series that will be in John for the first 40 weeks of 2018, and it's an invitation to come and see. I'm excited, though, also because Laura and I got to study this together. She taught all of chapter 2 to our ladies on Thursday, and I get to teach the first half Sunday, so I really just listened to her and then took her notes Thursday night. So I hope you guys enjoy this. See, Jesus, in the setting of John 2, has just literally days before called his first disciples. John the Baptist has seen him coming and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's this incredible announcement after 400 years of silence that Israel is waiting for. And he calls his disciples and they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And I think... Though you might not see the actual words, but John 2 is the beginning of a section of about 10 chapters where over and over and over, if you're looking, you can, you can hear the invitation to come and see. Because this is the first of his signs, John will tell us, and, and his disciples, it says, they beheld his glory. And turning water into wine, he says, come and see. And then at the end of the chapter, he turns cords into a whip and turns over tables in the temple and he says, tear this down, this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Come and and see. And then Nicodemus in chapter 3, Israel's teacher, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And he said, how can a man be born when he is old? And he kind of says, Nicodemus, come and see. And then he goes to the woman at the well in Samaria who's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man, not her husband. And he tells her all of it, and she's amazed. And she goes to her town and says, come and see. A man who told me everything about myself. And in John 6, or John 5 rather, Jesus shares about all these things testifying to him. And he says to the Pharisees at the end of the chapter, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Come and see. It's they that testify about me. John 6, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But if you eat the bread I'll give you, you'll never die. I'm the bread of life. Come and see. In John 7, there's this big religious feast going on, and they're pouring out purification jars of water on the altar, and they're quoting Isaiah chapter 12. We drink water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, right in the middle of their feast, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Come and see. In John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. Come and see. I'll make you free. Come and see in John 9, Jesus has this interaction with a man blind from birth. And you know what he tells him? He tells him, come and see. 
In John 10, he says, I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the good shepherd, come and see. And by the way, I have sheep who are not of this fold. There's your missions text. They must come in also. They will come and see. In John 11, there's his friend Mary and her brother Lazarus is dead. And, and Mary, Mary's disappointed in God. It seems like Jesus hasn't done what he can do. And she, she even says, Lord, if you had only been here. And Jesus looks at Mary and says, hey, Mary, come and see what I'm about to do. So that's the invitation. This is just the beginning of this section of Scripture where over and over there's this invitation to come and see. So let's read it together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And it's interesting that it's noted on the third day because on the fourth day of the previous week is when really the days start getting counted. And so there's day one. It's like there was in creation. Then there's the next day. Then there's the next day. Then there's the next day. That's four days. And then three days later, the seventh day, there's this wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, we, we look at this text and it, we, we can wonder what, what brought the people to the wedding. Was it simply an invitation from a friend? Was it that they knew there'd be great food there? Was it that the week had been long and hard and a wedding offered a time of rest and relaxation and enjoyment? Maybe there were couples that came to the wedding and their marriage wasn't doing so well and and perhaps the wedding would be a reminder of love that they had seemingly lost. Or maybe, like all Israel, who was looking for the bridegroom that, that the scripture said was coming. Maybe the wedding was a reminder that their oppression would not be the end of them. Whenever they, they'd come, we know, Lord, that many of them had the experience but they missed the meaning. They didn't see what Jesus did and they didn't know why he did it. And God, we don't want to be people who miss the meaning today. So help us to see what you would teach us in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John 2 sits in the context of the book of John and there's a reason the book of John was written. So there's a reason John... 2, 1 through 11 was written, and those reasons are the same. And we've been told by Gary, I'm going to remind us, one of the bookends at the end of the book, it says this, these are written, why? 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. That's one of the bookends. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you may have life in his name, there's another bookend that kind of points to what made people believe. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. See, this is the first of his signs. We're told he manifested his glory. We have seen his glory. This is the only son. They believe that he's the son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's why this section was written. And so we read this section in light of the resurrection, but we don't want to miss his meaning as we read. And that's easy to do because we're reading an ancient text whose original hearers were from a different culture than we are. So if I walked into a room, a crowd of people, and I was speaking to people from, let's just say, Japan, and I started my speech like this, four score and seven years ago, what do you, what do you think would come to their minds? The answer is probably nothing. But if I said to you, Americans, four score and seven years ago, what comes to your mind? Gettysburg Address, five of you paid attention in history. Congratulations. <laughs> That's good. See, it would evoke something in us. We would hear it and we would remember something from history. And throughout this text of a real event that really happened, it's rich and full of meaning. But most of the people who are at the wedding, like, They don't even see the first of his signs. This is the first of his signs. So in John, there are more signs coming. This is just the first one. John wants us to clue into that. We don't want to be like these people. T.S. Eliot, in one of his poems, said, we had the experience, but we missed the meaning. And the meaning is what gives rich and richness and fullness to the experience. So what are these great symbols that Jesus shows us about himself and that John shows us as we look together? So we're going to see Jesus. I'm going to tell you now, and then we'll talk about it. We're going to see Jesus as the obedient son that Israel was not. We're going to see Jesus as the one who brings new creation. We're going to see Jesus as the one true purifier. We're going to see Jesus as the winemaker because we're not Baptists, so he's not making grape juice. He's making wine. We're going to see Jesus as the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's the star of the story. So let's look. Let's look. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Man, you ever tried that with your mama? Take the trash out. Woman, what does that have to do with me? I never, I never tried that with my mama. Kind of want to duck just thinking about trying it, you know. See what this this is a this is a clear rebuke, really. Jesus only calls Mary woman one more time. It's when he's on the cross and he's letting her know that John will now care for her as a son would his mother. Five times total, including these two, do we read in in ancient literature of of a man calling his mother woman. And see, he's an obedient son, but his act of, of 
taking care of this wine is not the obedience we're talking about. He's actually separating himself. He's making it clear and distinct. I've come to do the will of my father. My hour has not yet come. Well, that that must mean, if you stop and think about it, that there's an hour that's coming. And if we were to read through John today in John 7, 30, there were people who wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again, in 8, 20, they wanted to arrest him, but his hour had not yet come. And he's, in John 12, he says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He tells his disciples again in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 17, when he's starting that final prayer the night before he died, Father, Father, the hour has come. And so he says to Mary, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, he's going to do some things, but it's not about wine at a wedding. It's about manifesting his glory. It's about showing that he's the Christ. That's why he does these signs. Well, why does he respond the way that he does? Because he's an obedient son to the Father, but he's also full of grace and truth. And it's an act of grace that he carries out this request. Well, well, he's the obedient son to the Father. And Israel was not. So this would have evoked in these first century hearers things like Exodus 4. See, Israel had a vocation. Then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel's my son. You let him serve me. There was this vocation God had for Israel and it was about the world knowing that there was one true God. We skipped from Exodus to Joshua. Rahab tells the spies, we've heard of your God and we stand in awe of him, how he dried up the Red Sea. Israel, my son, must serve me. Hosea 1, 11 and 2 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Israel failed to carry out their vocation of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and making God's name known among all the nations. But Jesus didn't fail. He was an obedient son. And that's beautiful because that means he can truly be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it's also beautiful because he carries out the vocation drill to all humanity so Jesus first is obedient son second Jesus is the one who brings in new creation Gary pointed to this a little bit in the intro in the beginning Genesis 1 1 God created the heavens and the earth this is the brightest and clearest four score and seven years ago moment John 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God and he was in the beginning with God Genesis 1 is the story of creation. John is the story of new creation. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. This light was good. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And right at the beginning of John, as we alluded to earlier, there's this count of seven days on the 
on the fourth day, the fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, and then you skip ahead to the third day. That's seven days total. At the end of John, John on purpose does the same thing. There's this count of the seven days. And then in this chapter, there is this creation. I don't know if you know this, but you can't take water and turn it into wine. That's what we like to call a miracle. If we could, can you imagine... Mamas of little children would have a spigot on the faucet. They'd flip that bad boy on at 4.30 p.m. Not at my house. I'm just talking about other houses. We have some friends that call that the witching hour on hard days. Listen, you can't turn water into wine. If you can, you come see me. We'll go into business together and, and spend lots of money on missions. You can't do it. But Jesus can because Jesus is ushering in new creation. In fact, nothing was made without him. He is the creator. And so he's bringing in the new creation. And it is a beautiful thing. He's the obedient son. He's the one who brings in new creation. He is the one who purifies. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. So before this wedding, they would have all gone and cleansed themselves, washed them wash their hands, they would have been clean. You had to be ceremonially clean to be with people. Filled the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. Well, these jars were wonderful things, but they weren't made for wine. These are ancient Jewish purification jars. There are six of them, just like at the wedding. Over here, these are for wine. On the left side, these are called amphoras, and they That's what wine was carried in for a long time in the Roman world. But then when the Roman army was moving north, they found that they were too heavy to carry the wine in. They needed a lighter, uh, a lighter container to carry the wine in. So they started carrying it in wooden barrels of all things. And so for 2000 years, wine has been held in wooden barrels and it brings out the richness and the fullness. And I was talking to Gary about this because if you know Gary, he likes a good glass of wine. And I told him, I'm going to preach about wine that's better than anything you've ever tasted. This is pure from Jesus. Well, Israelites in the first century, you you put wine in those and they're defiled. That is not what they're for. So Jesus really subtly is saying what he'll say explicitly at the end of this chapter. I'm the new purifier. When he tells them, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up, it's not about water and rites and ceremony. It's going to be about the wine of my blood. Like 1 John 1, 7 says if, if we walk in the light, he's the light, right? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God the Father and the blood of Jesus, that true wine, cleanses us. Same root verb as these purification jars. It purifies us from all unrighteousness. And he is the purifier, no longer with water and ceremony, but with the wine of his blood. He's the obedient son, He's the creator, he's the purifier, and then he is the winemaker. He is the winemaker. Well, when we say that, does that just mean that Jesus, like you got a party and the wine runs out, just call on Jesus? No, that's not what this is about. But the Jews, it's not just that they had run out of wine at the wedding. Israel, in a sense, had run out of wine, this symbol of joy. They had been in exile and they had come back to their homeland. So 
in theory, they're no longer in exile, but God's presence is not with them. And so it doesn't matter if you're in the right place. If you're without God's presence, you're in exile. There was no joy. There's silence. There's waiting. There's longing. And who are they longing for? They're longing for the one who will bring the wine. Well, what do you mean, Chase? Jesus didn't come to set up liquor stores, right? No. But listen to what their scripture said about the time when the Messiah would come. See, he serves the good wine first, usually, but they save the best wine till the end. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit and I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I give them, says the Lord. See, when Messiah comes, there won't be subsistence living anymore. There won't be oppression. It's evoking this almost land of milk and honey language. The promised land of new creation has come to the Israel of God. One new man he's making from Israel, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Messiah comes. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. See, there it is. Not for Israel, but for all peoples. The one new man, the church, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and wine, well refined. Come, everyone who thirsts to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and I will delight you with rich food. Our speaker at men's conference this week really pointed us to this reality that we labor, we pursue, we run after things that don't satisfy. But when Messiah comes, Israel's hearing, they're going to be satisfied with this great and rich wine. Joel 3.18, and in that day, the day of Messiah, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the, from the house of the Lord. See, when Messiah comes, joy is going to be restored he's going to take the ordinary and make it rich and beautiful colorful and full of flavor so there's this first glimpse through this first sign that the one has come who'll be the winemaker he's the messiah now that is not how you would expect the messiah to manifest his glory is it any more than you would expect that he would be born in a stable or buried in a borrowed tomb. But he comes and he makes the wine. So this sign for John, John's readers, it's a sign that the Messiah has come. And the last thing is that it's, he's the bridegroom. He's the obedient son. He's the new creator. He's the purifier. He's the winemaker. And he is the bridegroom. And this is a big, big deal. See, the bridegroom, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew it, he called the bridegroom. Well, why would he call the bridegroom? Why wouldn't he ask the servants, hey, where did, where did you guys get that wine? And the answer is because the bridegroom is responsible for the wine at the wedding in ancient Israel. And so if there's no more wine, this guy has embarrassed his family. 
All those old gossips in Cana and Capernaum, they're going to be walking around talking. Do you know at this wedding, they ran out of wine. It was so embarrassing. Right in the middle of the feast, there's just nothing left to drink. Shame and the shame and honor culture. But see, the bridegroom provides in a way that doesn't run out. Jesus is the true bridegroom. Again, it's evoking Old Testament language. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then right after this account in the wedding, John the Baptist is asked, your disciples are going after Jesus. Why, Why are they doing this? And so John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. And it's complete because the bridegroom has come. And we get it. We understand Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride, and that's great, and that's good. But again, we've got to go to the Middle East to really understand this. So if you, you get married in the West, who's the star of that show? The bride, right. I have four sons. I all love them. I don't care what they wear on their wedding day. No offense, Nate. Whatever tux the bride tells them to wear, whatever color she tells them to wear, just make sure everything's buttoned and zipped and we're good. I've got one daughter. I can't imagine what a basket case I'll be because I get a lump in my throat just saying, we're going to say yes to the dress one day. Makes me want to punch a young man. <laughs> and I kind of have one in mind. Not, not for my daughter, just that I'd like to punch, you know. <laughs> but that day, it's going to be about the bride. Well, see, in the Middle East... It's different. The bride is not the star of the story. The bridegroom is. The bridegroom is the star of the story. And I learned that in 2009 to the nation that I'll be heading to in 10 days. I was taking a vision trip almost nine years ago to the day with one of our goers, and they were going to move there later that year. And about three days before the trip, he said, hey, man, bring a a coat and tie. We're going to go to a wedding. Okay, I, I like weddings. We'll go to a wedding. That sounds fun. Never been to a Middle Eastern wedding. That'll be good. What I did not know is we weren't just going to any wedding, but in this oil-rich nation, we were going to the wedding of the oil minister's son. I've got the invitation in my office. It's nicer than my college diploma. It's embossed with silver. It was amazing. And so we pull up to this place and there's a party going on outside. There are men doing these traditional dances. We sit down. They bring us dates, cashews, Turkish coffee. We're having a great time. There are cameras filming everything that's going on. And I leaned over to the guy I was with and I said, hey man, where, like, where's, the, where's the bride? When's she coming in? He goes, I don't know. Well, later, later we go in and I think, oh, this is about to happen. We go inside this giant banquet hall. There are a hundred round tables for eight men each, each with a roasted lamb on it. In the front, there are five long tables, each with a roasted baby camel. 
That might not be your thing, but that is their thing. <laughs> Big deal. They're loving it. I was just suffering for Jesus, eating that lamb. It was amazing. <laughs> so I, I asked one of the people that lived there, I said, hey, when, when's the bride coming in? And he just laughed. He said, man, this isn't an American wedding. The bride's not coming in. I said, what do you mean? He, pointed, he said, you see those cameras? I said, yeah. He said, right next to us, there's a banquet hall full of 800 ladies. And those cameras are focused on the bridegroom because that guy's a star of the show. And they're just watching and they're enjoying and they're eating. And in about 30 minutes, the bridegroom and his wedding party are going to go into where those ladies are. And they're ladies who've known this man since he was a child. And he's going to stand in the middle of all those ladies and they're going to speak about his character and his humility, the sort of good man that he is. And then the bridegroom is going to take the bride away to great and thunderous applause. Oh, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the bridegroom's coming. Because just like there, we get it. We're the bride. We will be presented radiant without spot as a love gift to the father but the bridegroom is the star of the show and this is a bridegroom whose wine never runs out so what do we do with this what do we do with this first we behold his glory like we can behold it in the ordinary event of a wedding we behold it every day we're even told to behold it in the mundane. God is always doing, John Piper says, 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. Our, our heartbeats are sustained because God sustains them. The breath in our mouth belongs to him. He makes sure oxygen is coming in, carbon dioxide's going out. He does that. You ever, real, on different time zones, at different, almost in unison, even in this broken world, most people go to sleep about the same time every night, wake up the next day. You ever wonder how you do that? I don't wonder. I have five kids. I know how I go to sleep at night. God's, there's this order that holds the tides back. There's this order that when we go to pick up food and put it in our mouth, it means our brains tell our hands to do it because God is always sustaining it sometimes we forget that sometimes we don't appreciate that my wife is, is reading a book and she shared with me the other day a quote from it that I loved it says when we gaze at the richness of the gospel and the church and find them dull and uninteresting it's actually we who've been hollowed out we've lost our capacity to see wonders where true wonders lie we must be formed as people who are capable of appreciating goodness and truth and beauty. And if we've got eyes to see, there is goodness and truth and beauty around us every day. It's just there for us to see. So we behold his glory. Because the risen Jesus says, come and see. He says, come and see. And there's something amazing to see. So if we had any application today, it would be that we behold the glory of the new purifying wine of his blood and that that would stir our affections for Jesus in such a way that we are devoted to him and can't stop talking about him. And there's this one other application. If we would, 
we would listen to Mary's advice. We're in church, so if I ask how many of you want to see God do amazing things, you all have to say yes, right? But see, we're looking for the bigger. We're looking for the grand. We're looking for this awesome. And it says that the master of the feast didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants who drew the water knew. And the servants just, just listened to Jesus' mom when she said, do whatever he tells you to do. So by his grace, if, if with grace-driven effort we do what he's told us to do, if we love one another, if we serve one another, if we fight hard to have unity with one another, if we forgive one another, bear with one another, care for one another, I guarantee you, you do that and you will see God do amazing things. And even as I say it, I look at some of you that I know and I have seen and do see God doing amazing things through you. See, that's the bridegroom that's at work in us. And he's got wine of purification and joy that never runs out. So let's thank him for that. God, this chapter was written that we might believe like the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing, seeing his glory, we might have life in his name. And so God, for those in this place today that don't have life in his name, I pray, God, that you would bring them to life in his name, that they might know and understand forgiveness and hope and true eternal life in Jesus. God, for others of us who've just forgotten the wonder of the obedient son, the wonder of new creation, the wonder of this reality that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. The wonder of the one who brings new wine and the bridegroom who even now is preparing us. God, would you stir our affections for Christ that we might behold his glory and that we might declare his goodness to the world around us. Help us, Father, to come and see and help us to help others to come and see. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. You have a wonderful week in Christ.